Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our study of the parables. Uh, in this parable, we are going to be going over the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And this is kind of a, a parable that Jesus gives to teach his disciples uh, kind of his last important lesson about the kingdom just before he goes to Jerusalem. Um, before we had studied that there's three types of parables, there's kingdom parables, uh, there's also the parables of judgment and the parables of grace. Uh, and this is a little bit hard to characterize. We're not, uh, I would say it doesn't fit neatly into either of those. It is definitely a parable of the kingdom where Jesus is teaching about his kingdom as opposed to the ways of the world. But it does have strong elements of grace and helping us understand grace and also strong elements of judgment in it. And it's in that kind of transition point in his ministry. And so we'll kind of notice how it kind of applies to all three of those categories, this parable. It's the second largest or longest parable in the Gospel of Matthew, um, just after the parable of the prodigal son. And so because of that, we'll be looking at the text um, uh, in our my Bible app as opposed to just through the PowerPoints. Um, but here's kind of what we'll be doing. I'll share a screen you can see what our agenda is for today. Okay, so first of all, what we'll be doing today, we'll be looking at the context of the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, we'll be looking at some details in the language and the parallel texts that help us understand that language. Especially there, we'll be looking at when Jesus calls the man friend. Uh, we are going to be looking at what are the expected, the unexpected actions in the parable. This is usually trying to understand the key of what Jesus is teaching or the shift in perspective that we're trying to see. Uh, we're going to ask, what does this teach us about the, the kingdom of God and how it's coming into this world in surprising ways, as opposed to how the world might work? Uh, we'll ask the question, what would cause humans to resist this aspect of the kingdom that Jesus is teaching? And what response does it call us to in faithfulness? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Let's jump over to um, another screen. We'll be looking at um, uh, the text itself, and I'll just read it for us. See if I can get my technology to work the way I expect it to. Here we go. There. Okay. So the first thing to notice is the context of this. If we look up, see what Jesus is doing um, with this parable. Just before this, there's been the rich young man coming to ask, you know, what am I going to do? And I hope, what am I going to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? Um, and Jesus ends up, kind of rebuking this young man. He thinks that he can um, behave his way into God's kingdom. Uh, and so he says, what, what should I do? And Jesus says, well, you know, he says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And so this is kind of a uh, command that this man cannot take, cannot perform. Uh, he's then said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't bear false witness and honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives the commandments from the uh, the law, the book of Moses, 
Um, and in particular, this love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man kind of arrogantly says, yeah, I've done these. What do I still need? What do I still need to do? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect or complete, go sell everything you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. The young man is heartbroken and he goes away. And then Jesus teaches his disciples. He says, you know, um, truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this and they're astonished, saying, then who is there hope for anyone? So this is useful because it's, you know, it's asking the question, can anyone purchase their way into the kingdom? Or who can be saved? Now, this guy's an upstanding citizen. Who can be saved? Uh, Jesus says, nope, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So only God can invite into the kingdom of heaven. You can't behave your way into it. You can't purchase your way into it. Um, and so then Peter asks uh, some interesting, an interesting question. Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And we think this might be an arrogant question from Peter, um, but it really has some, some use for it. And some Jesus doesn't rebuke it right away. He says, Jesus instead answers with a promise. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the world, when the Son of Man will sit on, uh, in the new world, so this actually, this word is the regenerated world. It's an interesting word. Uh, it just means the renewed world, the new, renewed creation. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so this is an astonishing promise from Jesus that the disciples will actually um, be involved in the judging of God's people on the last day. So quite an honor. And then he goes on to say, and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. And so this is really um, this teaching we need to highlight is many who are last will be first. And this is going to kind of launch Jesus uh, into highlight for us. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, it will launch Jesus into this parable. So it's important that we grab this context. Jesus is teaching about, um, is there going to be greater or lesser people in the kingdom of heaven? And he kind of says, yeah, in the last day, there's going to be a distinction. But don't let that make you think um, that uh, we should pridefully try to obtain the kingdom of heaven. Don't don't look, we could kind of show our hand here, don't look at the other people around you um, because at the end, it's all going to be level. The first will be last, the last will be first. So don't become arrogant thinking, you're. oh, I'm doing this so I can be first, right? And so that, as a, as a saying that kind of rings out a teaching of Jesus that is universally applied, he then goes on to explain that teaching and that that phrase, that saying with this parable. So let's read the parable. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house 
who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went going out again about the sixth hour. So this would be about noon. Um, so the third hour uh, would be about nine o'clock in the morning. The first hour is daybreak or 6 a.m. So he sends the first ones out early in the morning around 6 a.m. Third hour, that's nine o'clock. He sends the other group. Uh, and then he goes again. Um, the sixth hour, he does the same. And finally, in about the 11th hour, so that'd be like 5 p.m., um, days just about spent, uh, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now notice here, um, he doesn't have the same dialogue with these last people. He doesn't agree with them as he did with the first ones. He just says, you go too. And he doesn't even promise them pay, but they fi probably figure, well, what the heck? There's an hour left. What could it hurt? And they said to him, um, or, and when evening came, verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, just like he promised. Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more. So somehow they found out that those who were hired last got a denarius. So you can think they're doing a little quick math in their head. If, if this guy's going to pay a whole day's wages, we could say it's about 200 bucks for a late, like $15 an hour or something like that. They got 200 bucks. So, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to receive money more because if they got $200 for an hour's work and I worked for 12 hours, I mean, that's maybe $2,000, $2,400. So they get excited about this. So they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received an denarius. Everyone got the same. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only an hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So we see this from Jesus, this, um, this teaching of the first being last and the last being first being expanded in this parable so that we can grasp it all the more. It's important to notice too, for context, just after this, Jesus teaches about his own death and his crucifixion. So again, this, um, something's going on that the disciples are missing. 
that they're not grasping. And he's trying to explain just after this as well, uh, the, the mother of uh, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, she comes and says, hey, make my guys the top dogs, right? Make them at your right and your left. And so we can see that they still don't understand this teaching of uh, equality or a level playing field in Jesus's disciples that he's trying to explain to them. Anyway, going back to the parable of the vineyard, a few things that we can uh, point out. Let's see here. We can say in the context, Jesus is trying to point out something about grace. And let's look at this uh, context as well. Um, or I'm sorry, let's look at the, this language. I'm going to point out just a few things in the language that he's using. Uh, first of all, in the text, um, Jesus only has this extended dialogue with the beginning laborers. Um, but there's this intentional contrast between the first laborers and the last laborers, right? The first laborers are in there for a day, right? And the last laborers are in there just for an hour. Um, and so we see that that there couldn't be a bigger contrast between these workers. And really it's between uh, the first workers who worked all day and the last workers. And so um, key to this is verse 11, uh, on because on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour. So they just worked one hour, same, but they got the same bay. And look what they say. What What is their core complaint? You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day. So here's the, and the scorching heat. Here's the rub is um, that they feel like they are being they are being made equal so it's not they're not really um upset about the difference of pay or the amount of work but that they are being compared uh to the ones who have only worked for a few minutes when they have worked all day so like hey we are better than them so it's kind of this personal insult that they feel that you have made us equal to kind of the lazy people uh, who have kind of just been dragged in at the last minute and barely did anything in the work. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to show you is this, this use of the word friend is really interesting because he replied to them friend. Now, this is a not typical um, word for friend. Uh, it's not, doesn't, like friend doesn't really capture it. It's more like, an aggressive use of the word friend, or it would be like saying, look, Buster, or all right, buddy. You know, it's kind of like diminutive. It's talking down a little bit, or it's a little bit unfriendly. It's not like saying brother, you know, or a true sense of friend. It's saying, hey, look, pal. And so there's only two other places where this word is used in the gospel of Matthew. In fact, this word is not used in any of the other Gospels except for Matthew. And in both of the places where this is used, it's it's not great. So uh, I'll show you um, some of those. I'm going to share a different screen to catch these. Um, let's see here. There we go. 
So the other two, the first one is in another parable, uh, the parable of the, the wedding feast. Um, the king has invited all these people into his uh, into the wedding feast. Some have rejected the invitation, but he ends up getting all kinds of people, good and bad, uh, honorable and dishonorable to come to his feast. But at the end of the parable, there's someone there who doesn't have the right attire. So when the king came to look in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said, friend, there's the word again, friend, buddy, pal, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Uh, why are you being rude? Uh, you're snubbing the, the dress code, this great feast that you've been invited to. Why did you come in here without the proper attire? And he had nothing to say. So he doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. He just has nothing to say. He's not sorry about it. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's, this use of friend is um, unfriendly. And in this context, it has to do with uh, judgment. The person is clearly in the wrong. Similarly, Jesus uses the word friend here when he's being arrested by Judas. Um, and so he speaks this word friend, buster, pal to Judas as he comes to betray him. Um, and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So it's used negatively in the context of the parable of the wedding feast, and it's used negatively in the context of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And so it's just good to, to note that that's what's going on. So back to um, our parable, we see this is not a friendly use of the word friend, we could say friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So he points him back to his own agreement, his own word back at the top. Um, he negotiated with the laborers for a denarius. So it's like everyone signed paperwork. They agreed, they shook hands, right? So he's the master points him back to his own words, right? Uh, didn't, uh, didn't you agree with me? right? What's, what's the problem? You signed a contract. Now you want to renegotiate um, in light of what's happened, but there's no reason to. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out um, uh, let's see, right here in verse 8, it says, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Now, what's interesting about this word foreman is it's not a typical, not again, not a typical uh, word. It's um, literally, it's the Lord of the vineyard. So the translation has said that's uh, a good gloss for that is foreman, right? The one who's in charge. Why it's important that we would understand that the language is is the lord curios of the the of the vineyard it's because it help us helps us to de decode this that jesus is the lord of the vineyard right jesus is the lord of the harvest jesus is the this one who's ultimately in charge and as in the context just before um, jesus is the one who will judge um the world on the last day the day of 
uh, rebirth or regeneration uh, along with those disciples. So Jesus points himself out as that ultimate Lord, and he's the, he is the foreman here. He is the one doing this. So the foreman comes and gives the payment uh, to these people. But that is shown in Greek to be the Lord of the vineyard, who we would more easily understand as Jesus in this. So, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And I am not allowed to do, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Of course he is, right? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, this word begrudge is really interesting. Uh, literally, the word is, do you have, or the words are, do you have an evil eye because of my generosity? Now, I find that really interesting because that evil eye has kind of uh, found its way into English as well. Um, I had a friend who used to be able to look, you know, he would look at uh, paintings on the wall or um, things that should have been very straight, parallel. And he, he would say, I can put my evil eye on that and see that it's slanted. And so an evil eye is kind of the eye that always measures something, always compares something. And uh, it can also mean being envious right? Being embittered. Begrudge is pretty good too. But I, I just thought it was interesting to point out that the Greek is saying that why is your eye evil because of my goodness, my generosity? And I just thought it was an interesting uh, language to point out. So um, the point of the story, right? Let's, let's kind of interpret this together. Um, and I'll put... Uh, put the other questions up here for us to consider. Um, what are the uh, expected and unexpected actions in this parable? Well, I would say the expectation of uh, pay that's proportional to our effort is what the world would expect, right? That's what is expected. Um, no business people in general don't just give bonuses for no reason, right? They give bonuses for performance. Um, you can't really run a successful business if you do what this labor or this uh, this vineyard owner did and just was super generous to people who were not contributed to his bottom line. And so the unexpected action is the action of the vineyard owner that he would be super generous. Um, to the same people and not care about their performance, not care about their contribution, but would give them all what, what he said he would. And so, you know, you could ask, well, what would cause this vineyard owner to do something like that? Why would he be like that? And that's really the, the question mark in this parable is why would uh, this vineyard owner break all the financial rules and common sense? Why would he um, instead uh, be super generous? It doesn't seem like it makes sense at all. So that's unexpected. The ex expected actions would be the actions of the workers that they would say, 
hey, that's not fair. You know, I think certainly if you have been in a work environment where some people are promoted and some people aren't, and there's not a clear reasoning why, or you feel like um, someone got promoted who should not have been promoted, or I was passed up for my promotion when I'm the most valuable member of the team, just rubs us wrong in our world, right? We we hope that we would get what is coming to us um, when we put in our effort, right? So that's not how this vineyard owner operates. He operates weird and he's uh, super abundantly generous to everyone. And in particular, to those people who just barely made it and just barely contributed, they are made equal with those other workers. So that's the weird thing. The the action of the uh, the owner of the vineyard is what is strange. So that's the focus here. And also the complaint um, is the focus. So the dialogue really centers on the complaint of those who um, have borne the heat of the day in the scorching sun. So that's the hinge of this parable. So what does this teach us about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world? Well, I think you, if you've been around Christianity, you understand Christianity at all, that Jesus is saying, this is how my kingdom works. Uh, everyone gets the same scoop, right? Everyone gets the same reward. Uh, everyone is made equal in the gospel, that it's not a performance-based uh, religion. It's not an equal reward for equal effort, but rather it's a gracious gift. Um, for it is by grace that you have been saved. And this is not your own doing so that no one can boast. So this, you know, of course, we've had 2000 years of thinking about this and and maybe um, hearing sermons that emphasize this or reading other passages that makes this very explicit. But if you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who really are expecting a, a political kingdom or an earthly kingdom, who are expecting to get out of it what they put in, and this would be, again, evidenced with uh, the question of Peter hey, what are we going to get? We've given up everything. What are we going to get? Uh, it's also evidenced by the question of uh, the sons of Zebedee, their mom saying, hey, my sons have been in on this kingdom work since the beginning. And so can you put them in the top tier of the rulers of your kingdom? They expect that there's going to be a tier system, that there's going to be a um, preference for those who have done more for the kingdom. And I want to make a careful distinction here because on the last day, on the day of judgment, Jesus does seem to say, uh, in fact, it's inescapable, I would say, he says there will be a distinction. There will be those who rule and judge over the tribes of Israel. And so he does say on the last day. But in this parable, he says the kingdom now is not like that. The kingdom today um, so in the ministry of Jesus, in his earthly ministry, that kingdom is not like this. In fact, he says you have to be uh, like a servant if you want to be great in this kingdom. And so the kingdom of God, as it breaks into the world in Jesus's day, is this kingdom of mercy and this kingdom of grace that um, is given for the sake of Jesus, who died in the place of all humanity. 
So the person who has been a Christian all of their lives from day one, um, done mission trips, maybe uh, been faithful to hear God's word, to grow in God's word, been uh, a faithful steward of their resources, a faithful father, a faithful mother, um, sought to give honor to God with everything they did versus the person who on their deathbed says, uh, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. Right? They all get the same Jesus. They all get the same mercy. They all get the same grace. Um, and it pushes against the idea that I'm going to earn some standing before God one way or another, that I will have some preferential treatment um, as I come into the kingdom. And the answer is you won't. In fact, uh, it seems that it can be a detriment, like the rich young man, having a lot or doing a lot or being morally good if you're counting on those things can actually be a detriment as you seek to come into the kingdom of God. In fact, those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God are the children, are the weak ones, are the ones who come as beggars or as tax collectors or as sinners and not as the righteous. And so this is the teaching here um, that everyone gets the same. Everyone uh, receives as a beggar would receives the mercies of God and, and it levels everyone. And so the question that I have next for us is, well, what would cause humans to resist this aspect of the kingdom of God? And I think the answer is the same as in the parable, right? It's we have worked hard. We deserve something to match our efforts. Uh, we have given more money to the church. We have um, suffered longer for the sake of the gospel. We ran Sunday school. <laughs> we um, built the church. We scraped our money together to build the church. Um, my dad was a missionary. My uncle was a pastor. I am an insider and I deserve just a little bit more. And I'm not so sure about those people who aren't trying so hard who barely make the cut, who come in at the 11th hour or like the thief on the cross, um, confess their way into God's mercy and grace on their last day, contributing nothing to the kingdom of God here. They also receive the same benefits. And we would say in any other situation in this life, we would say that is not fair. Uh, it's not right even. But it's right because it's all been a gift. It's right because it's all been mercy. And so if we can't see that and we insist on um, that God would be fair to us, right, that this could actually be a quite a detriment to our faith. Uh, we're trying to stand on our, on our own ability. And this can actually lead us away from God, away from the gospel. Now, there's been some um, interpretations of this that are a little bit more strict. So I mentioned this does help us to understand grace. Um, God's grace is for everyone at the same proportion um, because it's a gift and because it's um, free grace for the sake of Christ. He died once 
for all people. So it's equal for every person who asks, they receive uh, the grace of God. No one gets two scoops, right? Um, but there, there's this other uh, aspect, that's the kingdom of grace. There's this aspect of judgment here that is is kind of floating around. Now, I, I want to say I've read some interpretations that um, kind of say, and I'll go back to the text so we can see it. Um, right here, where he's talking to his friends, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. And so this, uh, this language of going has been sometimes taken a little too far, I would say, that sometimes it's been, um, it's been used to say this is saying this man will go to hell. He's kicked out of the kingdom at this point. Uh, that this, and especially in the connection with the word friend being connected with Judas and connected with the other parable where, where that man is kicked out. Um, that's been used to say something like, uh, if you are, you know, in this boat of, of getting this wrong and insisting to get what you deserve, then you will be condemned. And there's, I would say, I can see what would lead people to that idea that those who insist, God, give me only what I have earned from you, uh, will get condemnation because what have we earned from God? Um, we ourselves have earned judgment. We ourselves have earned condemnation with our sin, both our inward thoughts and our deeds, those things we forget to do, those things we neglect to do, those um, um, contorted priorities that belong to each human heart. So if we're saying, give me what I deserve, um, that is a ticket to hell, right? If God gave us what we deserve, it would be our judgment. So thankfully, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us his grace. He gives us Jesus. Uh, he gives us his mercy. So the reason why I think this parable isn't really teaching that, although others do, this parable really isn't teaching that because this man still received his denarius. And so this teaching seems to be more about the internal workings of the church, the internal workings of God's people, uh, rather than the external, those who never understand the gospel, those who never um, understand and receive God's grace uh, as beggars. That's not, I don't think that's the teaching. The teaching has more to do with the church. How do we look at one another in the church? And I think Paul in the New Testament, he'll say, no one can say uh, as a member of a body, I'm a more important member of the body than you. My The hand is more important than the foot or the eye is more important than the ear or something like that, that we've all become one in Christ. And so when we look at brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not they're the hardest working people among us in the church, the most exemplary people, we are not to uh, think of them as outsiders. We are not to think of them as um, those who don't deserve God's grace. Instead, uh, to use the language of the parable, we are not to have an evil eye against other Christians who have come in with the same mercy and grace that we have 
thinking that we have done more to deserve God's mercy than they have. So we're not to use an evil eye on them. And so one good way to think about this is if we just keep our eyes on Jesus, the master of the vineyard, if we keep listen to his words, listen to what he says, he'll give us what is right. We just listen to uh, the invitation to the gospel and the mercy of the cross, and we're contented with the generosity of the master. Uh, there's no problem. It's only when we begin to look to the side, right? We look with our evil eye, not our righteous eye. <laughs> we look with our evil eye towards our neighbor. And then we begin to think, well, why is God treating me like, why, are you, why is God making me equal to the, the consummate sinner who just barely makes it in? You know, why is God making me equal um, to this person who has ruined their lives and the lives of their family with divorce or with um, uh, these great sins? You know, why would God be merciful even to a murderer, you know, on death row? but they're going to get the same as every other good upstanding citizen. And we begrudge the mercy of God. That's the warning here. Don't do that. Um, instead, celebrate the mercies of God. Man, even those people who you would never expect God to be merciful to, he is for the sake of Christ. And, and then we can begin to say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, there's nothing in, uh, in other people, other sinners who have been redeemed. There's nothing in them. Um, manifest sinners, murderers, adulterers, slanderers. There's nothing in them that is not also in me and also needs to be forgiven. And uh, yes, they acted on it. They did damage in this creation, but I'm, I'm as guilty as they are of being a sinner. And God has had mercy on them. Thanks God. Thanks be to God. He has had mercy on me. So the gospel levels us and takes away out of our hands the performance aspect of what it means to be in God's kingdom. And I think this is actually one of the most um, resisted aspects of the kingdom of God. It really is. And I, I don't blame people. They think all, all my efforts are for nothing. Uh, well, in one sense, they are in the sense of the gospel, in the sense of re receiving God's mercy, all your efforts are for absolutely nothing. Don't bring them up. Don't bring them into God's judgment and say, here's, give me what you owe me. Uh, it's a disastrous thing to think. So we are to train ourselves to think in the way of the kingdom. Um, God's mercy comes to all people and it's indiscriminate. And anyone who receives um, the regeneration of baptism is going to be in the regeneration of the new creation. Anyone who has the mercies of God applied to their sinful hearts will receive the full portion of God's kingdom, eternal life. Thanks be to God. We're not in competition with those people. Uh, rather, we are to celebrate God's mercy all the more when we see it happen in profound ways. So that would cause us to resist the aspect of the kingdom. And the response that uh, we are called to for this, I think, follows. And that is to have an attitude uh, like Christ in the church to recognize um, brothers and sisters around us with the same regard, trying to have the same regard as, as God has for them in Christ. 
that even though they were called at the 11th hour, the last minute, um, nonetheless, the Lord in his generosity and in his mercy saved them. And so we are called to consider our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. So I think that is the parable of the vineyard. Um, that's how we should uh, best understand it, um, understand what Jesus is really trying to teach. And I think to put a little bit of an exclamation mark on it, uh, he's teaching nothing, nothing else than the cross. And so you might remember um, in the context, the thing that comes right after this conversation uh, is when Jesus teaches, uh, predicts his death for the third time. So this is what we'll end with. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and he on the way and he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Um, the great mystery of the kingdom of God is in death, not achievement, not powerful human effort, but it's in death. And if you will not find uh, the kingdom of God in death, in the death of Jesus, and in the universal mercy of the cross, you will not find it at all. Uh, but thanks be to God, it is here for us, coming equally to all who repent and believe. So that is the king. Uh, that is the the teaching uh, that Jesus is getting across as he goes into uh, the last days of his earthly life before his resurrection, and he wants us to know these things. So I hope uh, that is useful for you. Hope you've been able to get some new insight, new ideas on this uh, wonderful parable from Jesus. And I hope it helps you to celebrate the grace of God, mercy of God has gone to all people. And I hope it helps you to look at your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, with a new eye, uh, the eye of Jesus. So God's blessings and I'll talk to you again as soon. Uh, we'll cover more of these parables soon. Uh, you can watch for them here on YouTube.